Hi, you're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Naima McCloskey, the CEO and founder of Fearless Futures. And this is the show where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods for equity and inclusion. I'll be sharing new perspectives as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. In this episode, I'll be sharing answers to questions we've received from listeners of this podcast series. As we released earlier episodes, lots of people got in touch to ask questions that had come up for them. Realising there was probably a lot going on for folks, we also opened up the opportunity to ask any questions in our newsletter. Over the course of this episode and the following two, I'll be offering the answers to a select set of questions that we received. Enjoy! So here's one of those questions. We speak a lot about the importance of dominant groups standing up for equity, not leaving the work solely to groups that are persistently placed at the margins of society. Being in a dominant group, though, brings access, comfort and the very tangible benefits. So why question all of that? In your experience, what's the most effective way to start breaking this inertia? Thanks. So this is a question that comes up a lot, of course, as you can imagine, particularly as we move towards the end of our learning programs, um, where we move into the kind of application phase of, of our kind of um, of our education. And this is something that kind of niggles at people like, why would I challenge the access, comfort and the very tangible benefits that I'm receiving because of particular positions I might hold um, in relation to oppressive systems. And of course, the answer is really simple. You choose to. There isn't any special magic that happens. Um, It's a principle, it's a value. And as a consequence, we make decisions in line with our values and our principles every single day and we also sometimes fall short of that and and this issue when it comes to kind of thinking through the ways in which we can act in service of equity and justice even in our day-to-day is one of those very things um we make choices all the time and we get to continually and i think this is really important we continually get to recommit to our values and our principles when we mess up and we fall short of them because nobody lives perfectly aligned with their values all the time it's impossible and so this is really about kind of getting your kind of compass aligned being really clear about what it looks like for you to be aligned with your kind of anti-oppression compass and moving in accordance with that for the most part it's about getting really clear about the paradigm that you want to be operating in the risk that you are prepared to take um, because we know that there is no way to remove risk when it comes to um, anti-oppression work and of course those risks as I've shared in previous episodes are going to be differential depending on people's um, identity and their relationship to living within sites of oppression but it really is make a choice to act in alignment with certain principles and values and then when we're out of alignment realigning rechoosing, recommitting um, and getting on our way so another question that we've received is how do you engage with people who aren't ready again i'm really glad um this was sent in because it also comes up an awful lot to be honest and i think there are a few things here the first is how do you determine somebody's readiness 
for me, I'd really avoid presuming that based on someone's identity or identities, that you're able to determine whether they're ready or not. Um, People can really surprise you. And one thing I think with being an educator and a facilitator is really practicing open-heartedness and kind of removing expectation from who people are and what they might be and what they might bring into the space in order to kind of be in a place of possibility for what comes up in people's learning. And that I think is a really great practice and essential actually for doing the kind of facilitation and education work that we do at Fearless Futures. But I also think it's really powerful in general when you're engaging people with um, ideas of equity and anti-oppression that we kind of meet them with that open-heartedness and with that sense of possibility of what could be learnt, of what could be unlearnt, of what could be acquired. Um, Conversely, some people who really bang on about how ready they are are in fact putting on a really elaborate performance. Um, And what's really interesting in our learning is that often, and not always, but sometimes or often, maybe is a little too much. So sometimes those who really claim to be ready for this kind of um, departure into kind of building their equity muscle are often those who, when you know push comes to shove, are the most um, reticent. Um, and I'm going to use the word fragile, which that's because, as you know, I've kind of spoken about before, they're really committed to this idea of themselves as a good person. And their readiness comes from this real commitment to, I'm a good person, um, and their identity as a good person in the world. And it's really then difficult for them to kind of engage with the idea of their participation. And our collective participation within these systems that are bigger than any one individual and so they often can then exhibit lots and lots of resistance um, that's also met with this kind of performance of their good person identity so I'd also kind of be wary of those who are like really committed to this departure um, because sometimes that isn't often um, something that they're able to live out not always but as I say sometimes that does also happen the other thing I'd kind of think about when we think about what is readiness is what is the context in which we're determining people's readiness so despite my effectiveness as a facilitator and an educator over dinner with friends, for example, I have been notoriously useless at, you know, quote unquote, changing anybody's mind when it comes to this. And that's because when I just enter a conversation with another person, as any of you might, we all are kind of, we're coming into the conversation as equally legitimate in opining on any particular topic, for example, because we're just having a conversation amongst friends. And that means that, you know, being open to correction or, you know, getting it wrong um, aren't really possible or they're made much less likely um, because there's this assumption that we all have an, sort of an equal stake in, in the opinions that come with the subject matter. Um, and of course, we might have an equal stake um, more broadly, but obviously that's very different to a learning environment where people are coming into the space knowing that they want their cup to be filled up, as it were, with the experience, with the exploration that comes with their engagement with co-participants and so on. So when you enter a learning space, you're automatically, by definition of it being learning, saying there are things that I don't know here and therefore I'm kind of yearning for that. Um, obviously at a dinner conversation everyone's there just you know to eat and socialize and so that paradigm isn't there and that can often mean that the way in which we all enter that space isn't um, conducive to reflection to interrogation to being vulnerable to what we don't know 
kind of a final thought when it comes to dinner party conversations when we're having sort of ad hoc conversations with friends one of the things we rarely think about is are the ideas that we're both sharing in this conversation in service of equity and justice and that's something that I actually bring into my own practice increasingly if I'm having a conversation with someone or it's getting frustrating because I'm not necessarily being heard or they think I'm not hearing them or you know as as things happen amongst humans is are the ideas that we're sharing in service of equity and that's a really really good compass alignment for either party to be like oh actually no the idea that I've just shared even though I feel really committed to it isn't actually in service of this end goal that we've both agreed is why we're having this conversation to kind of figure xyz out but if someone isn't ready convincing people rarely rarely works um if it was easy to say well you know i deplore you um honor this person's humanity i really think that you know we we wouldn't be where we are at this moment this podcast wouldn't need to exist neither would fearless futures education and all the other manifold ways in which people are working um towards building equity across our society in in various guises right convincing people is not useful um and we don't actually ever um think that that's a worthwhile endeavor in our own learning work we don't seek to convince participants in our learning um what we do say and what we are really committed to is offering people a lens or an analysis if they wish to prioritize equity in their lives and their work so allocate your energy and your resources where you have a higher chance of making a difference islamophobia and anti-semitism are rife in politics and our media outlets, which continue to cause bias, conflict and negative ideas, leading to continued oppression and lack of safety for many folks across the world. Yet they are often systemic oppressions which are addressed the least in the workplace and many feel uncomfortable to discuss. Any thoughts on the best way to approach introducing this topic into a workforce for awareness and learning, especially when it has never been addressed or spoken about before? I'm really pleased, actually, that this was raised. I would say that there is no time like the present, because I think what's really important is not to place oppressions as kind of outside the kind of wider context of history, um, to kind of separate it from the kind of wider ways in which oppressions exist, because, of course, oppressions can and are lived out interconnectedly. And so it's really important that we're kind of seeing these issues, while they might have particular dynamics, of course, as kind of as connected, um, as interlocking. And and so I would say that the things that you would need to do for any oppression would be the case for anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, um, which is, as always, ensure you have a really sound analysis of these oppressions before you kind of engage in, in these discussions. Um, and then, as I've said in previous episodes, just do. So don't feel that you need to do something really grand in order to get underway, unless, of course, your workplace is um, sort of enthusiastic about allocating resource once you've shared your analysis and the and the commitment you have to a, you know, a complete and holistic ways of, of the ways in which different oppressions interact, which, of course, would be fantastic. But really, you can start small to get things going. Um, you might find an article that you think really speaks to the kind of particular ways in which Jewish pain is denied as one of the ways in which anti-Semitism exists for example and you might have two or three colleagues that you'll come together you'll read it and you'll have a discussion and that can kind of build on and you might do the same for Islamophobia or you might find um, you know a film that you think is really powerful um, 
that you suggest that you will watch and then come together and discuss as a starting point you know or you might recommend that everybody starts receiving the newsletter from prevent watch which is an organization that monitors um, a particular uk policy called prevent um, which targets um, muslims um, and you might say well let's all join this newsletter and we can keep up to date and there might be actions that we can take get involved in for example so there's no time like the present there's no special way for to kind of include certain oppressions but starting small is often a really powerful way to get momentum rather than feeling like you need to come up with something really grand. Um, obviously, that's going to be different depending on people's levels of influence within an organisation. If you're a CEO right now and you're you're feeling energised and committed about this, then obviously you could do something really grand. And I would encourage you to do that once you've kind of worked through your analysis and, and where the best points of entry are going to be for this in your organisation. Thank you for listening to the Fearless Futures podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, rate and share this episode with a friend. If you're interested in learning more about the work that we do at Fearless Futures, please visit our website, fearlessfutures.org. Till next time.